Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. This week, I just have two readings. We're going to wrap up the program with a reading about one of the founders of Stax Records from the Memphis Commercial Appeal newspaper. But we're going to start with a reading from Harper's Magazine and its harpers.org website. The title is Letter from New Orleans, Book of the Living by Maria Maglawa, capital M-A-G-L-O-I-R-E, The House Museums of New Orleans. It was published in December of 2022. Omar Casimir dreamed of a flood a year before Hurricane Katrina arrived. The day after the levees broke, as he paddled a salvage boat through the deluge burying New Orleans east, using a broken board as an oar, the vision resurfaced as a deja vu. With a small digital camera, he photographed the dreamscape that now appeared in the world before him. Familiar street signs barely clearing unfamiliar reservoirs. He took pictures as he watched the waters rise from a room in the Super 8 Hotel on Chef Montour Highway, east of the city's industrial canal and south of Lake Pontchartrain, both breached, where he needed to sign a liability waiver to stay. As he told it in a poem he wrote later, the Super 8 roof started to peel like a Plaquemines Parish orange. The need to preserve what he saw followed him like a phantom. He took photographs as he sought refuge in the Ernest N. Morial Convention Center, a shelter of last resort like the infamous Superdome, where an estimated 25,000 people awaited supplies and evacuation, languishing for days. He documented a baby's first steps amid the exhausted crowd, National Guardsmen resting in wheelchairs on a nearby street, rifles between their legs. One morning in late January last year, the plastic-sheathed pages of what Omar calls his Katrina list sat in an open binder in my lap, like a holy book. It was one volume of a collection of thousands of names, phone numbers, and signatures of survivors of the storm and its aftermath. I was seated in the front room of his home in the ground floor of a two-story shotgun house on Cleveland Avenue, a notoriously flood-prone area mid-city that, on one rainy day in 2017, had left Omar knee-deep in water inside. We were surrounded by a maze of folding tables, chairs, and couches draped in kente cloth. In the center of the room sat a 4 by 4 metal cage that had been used by a search-and-rescue team to airlift people from the roofs of inundated houses after Katrina. Every inch of the wall space around us was occupied, covered with artwork depicting the storm's ravages and with Omar's photos. On one wall hung a large tarp affixed with handwritten accounts by survivors and aid workers. Triaging a nursing home patient who handed me a wet plastic grocery store bag and said, This is everything I have left. Omar, a spry 71 and dressed in white slacks and a white button-down, called this place the Katrina National Memorial Foundation. It was a house museum, as spaces like this are known in New Orleans. An installation of local and personal memory, sometimes art and culture, in a private home open to the public and most often run by a black elder. I came to the house museums through my friend Don Edwards, a gray-bearded griot who, on most days, could be found spinning tails in front of Flora Cafe in the Marginee, where I first met him nine years ago. I lived in Louisiana as a teenager and am now a seasonal resident of New Orleans, returning in the sweltering summers and fickle winters. Whenever I'm in town, I find Don at Flora, under the banana leaves, smoking the pyramid cigarettes he'll only buy at a certain liquor store in Chalmette, a suburb to the east. 
and he always greets me by saying, I've got someone I want you to meet. Soon we are on our way in his white utility van, its mysterious contents rattling and rolling in the back as we fly over potholes. It was Don who introduced me to Omar and to many other house museum proprietors, mostly men like him, charismatic and black, over 70, and prone to winding stories. Each time I come back to New Orleans, I become more aware of the responsibilities of memory work. In the past two years, several of the house museum proprietors have died. I returned this time to document the house museums while they still existed and to see the curators who remained, men who had become my friends, to listen to the stories of elders who had survived Katrina, the COVID-19 pandemic, the difficult years long before and the precarious years in between. Omar's museum, divided from his living space by a curtain of wooden beads, is dedicated to the storm and to the dream of a future grander memorial for its victims. Spread along one wall were blueprints, plans drawn up by his ex-wife, an architect, for the shrine of twisting glass and steel he aspires to build, his footprint the shape of a spinning hurricane. Less than two miles down the road, on Canal Street, was the city's $1.2 million official memorial for the nearly 1,200 Louisiana residents who died in the storm. A series of marble mausoleums containing the remains of the unknown dead and engraved with the names of the known. All that money and you can barely even read the names on those big old stones, Omar said, and they stole my design. The monument's walkway resembles a cyclone from above. Omar had sent a cease and desist letter to the mayor when it was constructed in 2008. He handed me a hefty three-ring binder to show me a copy. I call this my blood book, he said. Inside are dozens of missives sent to the IRS and to New Orleans city planners, citing sundry broken promises, especially regarding the city's sites of public history. Omar flitted around the crowded room like a hummingbird conjuring more documents and photo albums from overflowing drawers and shelves crammed with books about the storm. Titles like One Dead in Attic and Not Just the Levees Broke. The inauguration of Joe Biden played quietly on a television perched amid the papers on his desk. Do you remember Barack Obama's inauguration, he asked wistfully? I was there. He'd arrived a week early and stayed in what he called his executive suite, a van parked at a rest stop outside of D.C. He handed me a commemorative talking pen, still in his plastic cover, that blasted a line from Obama's 2008 election night acceptance speech. Change has come to America. I remembered it, of course, the feeling that things would be different. Omar told me that he'd planned to use his Katrina list to sue the government. They abandoned us, he said like many of the tens of thousands of people evacuated from New Orleans after the storm, he was flown out of state with no choice as to where he might be sent, and he arrived at Fort Chaffee, a military base in Arkansas that had housed Vietnam refugees in the 70s and Cuban refugees in the 80s. Some people don't like to be called refugees, he said, but I tell them, you was a refugee. They treated us like cattle. He spent his days at Fort Chaffee watching the news coverage of the flood and searching the internet for information on his home and his family. That is how he discovered that his mother, Louise Thecla Jones Casimir, had died after being moved out of her nursing home, which had lost power. A colorized photograph of Louise as a young woman in the 40s sat on a table nearby, her lips and cheeks the same powder pink. After Katrina, 
traumas like Omar's became one of the most recognizable elements of New Orleans' identity, alongside jazz and Bourbon Street, and the city was met with a wave of appetite for black suffering. Local tour companies, which had long offered ghost tours of the French Quarter and shepherded visitors around the grand homes of the Garden District, added Katrina tours, delivering out-of-towners to hard-hit neighborhoods to gawk at the destruction from the safety of air-conditioned buses. This hunger for devastation has remained and, in part, remade the city. It's there on the shops on Decatur Street selling T-shirts that read, New Orleans, you have to be tough to live here over an image of the Superdome and a handgun. It's there in the eyes of tourists when they ask what exactly happened during the flood. That's a question Omar never answers directly. He speaks circuitously, often recounting the history of New Orleans, its 300 years of European, African, and Asian migration. Napoleon needed the money, he told me, explaining the Louisiana Purchase, because he was fighting our grandparents in Haiti, and he didn't know they could fight. Omar had figured out the Caribbean origins of my last name and determined that we were likely cousins. You know who this is, he asked, pointing to a pin in the top button of his shirt, a tiny photograph of a light-skinned woman with thick black hair. I recognize her as Henriette DeLeo, a 19th century New Orleanian nun and the first black American woman to be considered for sainthood by the Catholic Church. That's my great-great-great-aunt by marriage, he said proudly producing yet another binder, this one full of marriage licenses, death certificates, and other records printed from the Louisiana State Archives and Ancestry.com. Omar had long sought formal recognition of his place in the New Orleanian, Louisianian, and American sagas, especially through entree into historical societies, and he pulled the blood book out again to show me letters documenting his battles. He'd recently proved that his seventh great-grandfather was a Frenchman who fought alongside the American colonists in the War for Independence, earning Omar a place as the only black member of the New Orleans chapter of the Sons of the American Revolution. But over the past three years, he'd twice been denied membership in the General Society of the War of 1812. He turned the book's pages to certified copies of the records he sent the organization, substantiating that nine of his ancestors had fought in the war. He believed that the majority white group would rather not acknowledge his heritage. They don't want me to join because they know I'm kin to some of them, he said. As he waited for a response to his most recent appeal, he started an alternative association, the Free People of Color Battle of New Orleans of 1812 Society. So far, he was the only member. By the end of the visit, I was left holding everything Omar had thrust into my hands. The Katrina list, the photo albums, the blood book, the talking Obama pen. I didn't want to set any of it down for fear of implying that any piece was unimportant. By the end of the visit, I was left holding everything Omar had thrust into my hands. The Katrina list, the photo albums, the blood book, the talking Obama pen. I didn't want to set any of it down for fear of implying that any piece was unimportant. As I balanced these items in my arms, Omar led me to an altar, tucked away in a far corner of the room. On a cloth-covered table sat Hindu prayer cards, a brass bell, a peacock feather, a small bottle of barefoot wine, and photos of spirits related and unrelated. Famous yogis, an aunt who'd passed away the year before, and Omar's youngest daughter, Asia, who'd passed in 2007 at 20 years old. She had a weak heart, he said 
a note written just days before she died rested against her wedding portrait. I pray for health, wealth, happiness, and love, now and forever, for myself and the world. The altar was like the museum, or rather, the museum like the altar. It had the same accretive logic, the same impulse to collect material shards left behind and to say, this was my life, or this is life. What do you think, Omar asked? Does it need anything? Omar's wandering had seemed to me a refusal of plain suffering, something akin to what Zora Neale Hurston called the African-American will to adorn. It was certainly a refusal of simple answers. For several decades, the house museums have shored up longtime residents' memories and their own views of the city. For a generation of black elders, these places are an antidote to a society that has told them in no uncertain terms that their lives and deaths do not matter. Through Don, I'd met proprietors such as Charles Gillum of the Algiers Folk Art Zone and Blues Museum, a gallery of paintings, sculptures, and quilts by local artists, and Ronald Lewis of the House of Dance and Feathers. Lewis's museum, like another, the Backstreet Cultural Museum run by Sylvester Francis, was dedicated to the Mardi Gras Indians, the all-black societies known for their elaborate suits of beads and feathers. When I visited the House of Dance and Feathers in 2014, a one-room structure in Lewis's backyard in the Lower Ninth, the walls were covered in photographs of parades, the ceiling hung with decorative fans and fragments of beaded aprons. At the Backstreet Museum a few years later, in a former funeral home in Treme, Indian suits towered like trees forced to grow inside, their headdresses brushing the ceiling. It was also with Don that I first visited David Fountain's Spirit of New Orleans Museum, a sparse space in Musicians Village in the Upper Ninth. Plastic-protected newspaper clippings documenting Katrina's aftermath covered the chain-link fence along Fountain's driveway. Among them was a photo that had spread worldwide of a corpse lying beneath a brick-anchored sheet spray-painted with the words, Here lies Vera. God help us. In the yard, where Fountain sat fanning himself, was an installation of what he calls his Katrinas, a collection of mannequins and sunglasses and wigs. The intent of each house museum is not always immediately apparent. Omar recently had a visitor who'd arrived in an Uber, drunk at midday, who looked around and declared, This ain't no museum. This is a house. The curators themselves provide the ligatures of meaning. Don and the proprietors are among those called culture bearers in New Orleans, a title that has always made me picture them carrying culture on their heads in clay pots, the way black people of another time or place might carry water. In some ways, the proprietors are the museums. But in the past three years, Fountain, Francis, and Lewis have all passed away. In 2020, Lewis died of COVID-19, now a common cause of death for black elders in New Orleans. Francis also died in 2020 and Fountain in early 2021. As this generation of culture bearers ages and passes on, and as storm after storm, housing prices and gentrification accelerated by the pandemic push black residents out of long-standing enclaves, it's unclear who, if anyone, will take their place. When I arrived in January, I headed straight to Florida to find Don, who had not been replying to my text and emails for some months. This wasn't necessarily cause for alarm. 
He often struggled with technology, but I was worried. When I asked the cashier inside if she'd seen him, her face fell. Don had had a stroke. I checked in at Flora every day that week, hoping he might show. Alvin Jackson's Treme Petit Jazz Museum sits on the bottom floor of his home in a bright blue two-story house on a street named for a slave-holding Confederate, Governor Nichols. 77 years old and jovial, with a Panama hat perched on his fluffy white hair, Jackson welcomed me into a surprisingly formal dining space, secluded from his one-room museum by partial walls. He'd pull out a chair for me at a long lacquered table, where he'd laid out a spread of waffle cookies and fruit, a pot of dark coffee and a freshly opened can of sweetened condensed milk, having warned me over text not to drink too much coffee before I arrived. Tango Café Bombón Esperando. The museum was full of instruments, a piano, guitars, horns, percussion, and framed historic venue contracts, agreements drawn up for artists such as Louis Armstrong, Ray Charles, and Little Richard, for performances at classic clubs in Louisiana and Mississippi, most of which, like the famous Do Drop In in Central City, no longer existed. It all began in Africa, Jackson said, embarking on the story of jazz. He picked up a set of castanets. Castanets come from the Ganawa people out of Morocco. He opened and closed his fingers with a clack. Don't let anyone tell you this is a European instrument. He escorted me over to a painting depicting young black drum and fife players in the smoke of a 19th century battle. Does this look like a second line to you, he asked, referring to the contemporary New Orleans brass band parades? There's no jazz without all-black military bands in the Civil War. And New Orleans jazz funerals, he said, had developed out of martial funeral processions like that which honored Andre Caillou, one of the first black officers to fight for the Union. Jackson lifted a clarinet and waved it like a wand to punctuate each stage of the instrument's historical journey. How Emperor Maximilian of Mexico brought polka bands to Central America from Austria in the 19th century. How a family of New Orleans Creoles living in Mexico, the Tios, played the woodwind incorporating the Mexican style, revolutionizing its use in the United States. How Lorenzo Tio Jr. taught the New Orleanian Barney Begard to play. It was Tio and Begard together who wrote Mood Indigo for Duke Ellington. Jackson joined the Air Force at 18 and was stationed in Weisbaden, Germany. He remembered the joy of trips to multiracial Paris, just putting on my civvies and catching the train. When he returned home after six years abroad, he came to question the limits of what his country offered, like so many black soldiers of the time. He set out to explore the world, over the years reaching Cuba, Venezuela, Spain. In Tunisia, he traveled in the footsteps of St. Augustine, who Jackson asserted was black. Jackson revels in little-known and rumored black ancestries. Andre Dumas, black. Alexander Pushkin, black. Ted Cruz, he says his ancestors are from the Canary Islands, Jackson said, laughing. Have you ever seen the Canary Islands on a map? He handed me a weighty document titled, After the Saga of the Confederate Monuments, Dare to Envision a Culturally Inclusive New Orleans. It was a heavy annotated proposal he'd submitted to the city recommending historical black alternatives for the names of streets and landmarks that still honored figures of white supremacy. The city had yet to reply. He took a book from a shelf and rifled through its pages before handing it over. 
On its cover was a pencil drawing of a boy in military uniform holding a drum. Jordan Bankston Noble, who'd served as a drummer in the War of 1812 as a teenager and had gone on to perform in the Second Seminole War, the Mexican-American War, and the Civil War on both sides. As an old man, Noble had often drummed in the streets of New Orleans, accompanied by two fifers, and according to Jackson, he was the first person of color to march and play in the city's avenues without wearing military colors. Jackson had written and self-published the book. It was carefully researched, but he took it as his prerogative to fill in gaps in the record. People talk about historical fiction, but I prefer the term creative history, he said. No, I wasn't born in 1815, and last I checked, no one alive was either. This reminded me of a poem by the black writer Lucille Clifton, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes. And I read it to Jackson. They ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories. And I keep on remembering mine. The lines resonated between us for some moments, like the rings of a bell. Jackson shook his head. We have not insisted on the inclusion of our memories, he said. Whether we want it to or not, we've become the new storytellers. The next day, I walked along a strip of black-owned businesses between Broad and North Miro Streets on Bayou Road in the 7th Ward. I used to live minutes away on North Dorjana Street and frequented these blocks, immersing myself in what seemed to be an independent and blissful black ecosystem. King and Queen Emporium International, selling homemade incense oils and tubs of whipped shea butter. Club Caribbean, a dance hall behind a turquoise facade painted with portraits of Barack Obama and Marcus Garvey in Rastafarian red, gold, and green. I hadn't known it at the time, but this was a type of curated experience. Much of the strip was owned by Dr. Dwight and Beverly McKenna, a local couple who intentionally rented to black businesses. I walked to meet the McKennas just a few blocks away at one of two house museums owned by the pair, the Musée de FPC, an acronym for Free People of Color, an imposing Greek revival mansion on Esplanade Avenue, an oak-lined street strung with Spanish moss. The day was gray and the grand house recessed in the shadows of hoary branches. On the wide front porch, empty rocking chairs steered between two-story Corinthian columns. It was easy to see it as it once was, the seat of antebellum plantocracy. I was conspicuously late and underdressed, and Kim Coleman, a 31-year-old woman who serves as the museum's director of interpretation, led me through its dim halls. Through open doorways, I caught glimpses of crystal chandeliers, polished mahogany, and oil portraits in gilded frames of light-skinned black people in tignons and waistcoats. The museum's subjects were the black denizens of New Orleans who were free during French, Spanish, and American rule before the Civil War, ranging from black artisans and artists to activists such as Homer Plessy of Plessy v. Ferguson. I'd visited the FPC some years ago, and I knew it'd be full of haunting juxtapositions. I'd held a pair of heavy shackles that had bound the legs of enslaved people and brushed the velvet of a prayer bench knelt upon by a wealthy Creole family of the same era. We arrived in the sunroom where the McKennas, both in burgundy sweaters, were seated with their backs to the windows that faced a lush garden. Their posture was impeccable. This is the only museum in the world that centers on black freedom, Miss Beverly said grandly. 
People look at us and can't understand why we have a black museum, she added, unprompted. I understood. The two were so light in complexion that someone unversed in New Orleanian ideas of race might believe they were white. I shut that down pretty quickly, Coleman said. These people have lived a blacker experience than I have. The McKinnis grew up in the 40s and 50s. Dwight in the 7th Ward, a historical Creole stronghold. He had little contact with white people until his last two years of college when he was among the first black students to integrate the University of New Orleans. Then you had to endure white people calling you, he paused and chose his words, names. I had a lot of animosity within me, he said, and I married a lady who understood. Miss Beverly grew up in the Midwest in Indiana and Ohio. Her debutante ball was in Chicago. My parents were always proud of our ancestors, she said, pointing behind me to a portrait of her great-grandmother who was born into slavery. On her mother's side, she could trace a line of free people of color back to the 17th century. The couple had lived in Washington, D.C. during McKenna's medical residency and were there when Martin Luther King was assassinated. McKenna remembers bleeding demonstrators who were admitted to the hospital where he worked, fires that raged through black neighborhoods, and the black businesses that shuttered and never reopened. My vision, like most visions, is clouded by my experience, he said. My anger has not been diminished. It has been channeled. McKenna's family had accrued substantial wealth over generations of liberty. The couple's second museum, the George and Leah McKenna Museum of African American Art, showcases work from the diaspora in a grand white home in the Garden District. They live in a third house and own other buildings throughout the city. We've had economic freedom, McKenna said. You cannot separate economic from political power. When they'd arrived back in the South, the McKinnis were floored by the racism of the Times-Picayune, and in 1985, they founded the New Orleans Tribune, named after the first black daily newspaper in the country. The couple had refused the near-constant overtures of white developers who covet their increasingly valuable real estate. The most powerful word in the world is no, McKinnis said. You're only free when you're free to say no. The pair's fortune had also allowed them to celebrate the art they valued no matter the whims of large and white-dominated institutions. In 2008, their gallery was the first to acquire self-portraits by the local painter Gustav Bloch III, capital B-L-A-C-H-E. Bloch had previously met with staff from the New Orleans Museum of Art, NOMA, about the possibility of a show of his work, but they had seemed uninterested. In 2010, when the McKinnis exhibited more of his paintings at the FPC, Noma curators attended, and a Bloch solo exhibition at Noma was arranged soon after. Bloch's work went on to be exhibited at the National Portrait Gallery and the National Museum of African American History and Culture. There's been a lot of interest in black museums lately, Miss Beverly said dryly as the day's faint sun left the room. They found out we're still alive. But why do we see money going to black exhibits within white institutions and not to black-owned institutions? As the city's house museums and small galleries have struggled to stay open throughout the pandemic, Noma has remained flush with cash and has scheduled exhibitions by black artists like the painter Jacob Lawrence and the New Orleans photographer Selwyn Stadius Polo Silk Terrell. Solo shows for black artists at Noma used to be rare. 
years passed between exhibitions. In June 2020, a group of former museum employees under the name hashtag DismantleNOMA published an open letter accusing museum administrators and senior staff of directing racist and homophobic slurs at employees, imposing racist dress codes, and perpetuating substantial racialized pay gaps. The group also alleged bias in the museum's collecting practices, including the tokenization and exploitation of black artists. NOMA issued a public response apologizing to current and former employees and to the community for any hurt we have caused and outlining an agenda for change, which included increasing the diversity of its board and its acquisitions, as well as establishing a new focus on New Orleanian artists. Some of the House Museum elders, like Omar, want the recognition that would come with the approval of a larger institution. In recent years, Omar's Katrina Museum caught the attention of professors in the Museum Studies graduate program at the Southern University at New Orleans, and he was invited to apply. But a college transcript was necessary for admission, and he had to reveal that he never attended. Others, like Mr. Jackson, are unbothered by their position outside the fold. Jackson described his own qualifications, saying, It's like having a Ph.D. in history. I don't, but I do. Farian Zinga, capital F-A-R-I, capital N-Z-I-N-G-A, an anthropologist and co-creator of hashtag DismantleNOMA, who'd held a prestigious fellowship at NOMA from 2014 to 2016, said the museum isn't unique in its culture and practices, but that it seemed extraordinary in its disregard for its community and the artistic production of Black New Orleanians, on whose reputation and labor the museum depends. As for the house museums, Nzinga said it was clear that majority New Orleans establishments haven't given two shits. If they had, they would have supported them, sharing resources, tools, and practices. After my visit to the FPC, I called Kim Coleman. She and I were both young, pedigreed black professionals who had been let down by many of the institutions we were told would guarantee our happiness and financial stability. We grew up with imminent success, she said. The House Museum elders, they grew up with imminent failure, and yet they are optimistic. The only way they could self-validate was to name themselves what white people would never call them. Owners, curators, historians. At the same time, she said, to exist, they've had to do something completely different than mainstream museums. That is, develop a community. The elderly proprietors I know don't have succession plans for their projects. When I asked Mr. Jackson if his daughters might take over Petite Jazz, he told me flatly, you cannot live your dream through your kids. Omar was evasive, but the thrust of his answer was the same. My family is interested, but they're not interested, he said. Coleman, who seemed a likely candidate to carry on the practice, planned to get out of museum work. She hoped to help the McKennas and the FPC access a series of new grants and then began her own work as a public archivist. She wanted to be in a decision-making role behind the scenes. She was exhausted by the need for in-person narrative at the small museums. Visitors, she said, especially white men, were always asking her, where did you learn this? Challenging her authority. I'm tired of telling you stories, she said. Why can't I act as a gatekeeper as well? She was uncertain the house museum tradition would carry on. The younger generations, she implied, favored less emotionally invasive culture work. They protected themselves. But, she says, 
I hope young people won't mind proving to elders that we are worthy of carrying the torch. Finally, on my last day in town, there was Don at Flora. Except for a walker folded discreetly beside his chair, the scene looks much the same as it had for all the years I'd known him. Don under the banana leaves smoking his pyramid cigarettes. I've got someone I want you to meet, he said. But it was someone he'd introduced me to years ago. When I told him I was on my way to see Omar, he furrowed his brow and asked, Now who's that? I felt the ground move beneath my feet. The two had known each other for a decade. When I gave a few identifying details, the Katrina Museum, the white button-downs, Don smiled. Oh, Omar, he said, his face relaxing. When you see him, tell him I said hey. Tell him I haven't forgotten him. In August, I returned to New Orleans to meet Damon Melancon, a young master bead worker and the big chief of the young Seminole hunters from the Ninth Ward. The new generations of New Orleans culture bearers are more focused on public spaces than private memorialization. Groups like Take Em Down NOLA, which targets white supremacist monuments throughout the city in New Orleans for Lincoln Beach, which advocates for the revitalization of a historical all-black beach in New Orleans East. But I'd heard that Melancon wanted to open a house museum. Early on Mardi Gras morning, an Indian suit encased in glass had appeared on a concrete plinth on the green space at Norman C. Francis Parkway and Canal Street in Mid-City. The slab had been bare since 2017 when Take Em Down Nola and others had succeeded in removing a bronze statue of Jefferson Davis. In shades of green, the costume stood like an exotic animal on display, nine feet tall from beaded moccasins to crown of ostrich feathers. Its apron, shimmering, depicted the life of Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia. Inside the glass enclosure, strewn along the bottom were a dozen flyers, all reading the same thing. The people are king. The suit had been created by Melancon, who delivered it at 3 a.m. as light snow fell, aided by a small crew of collaborators all disguised as construction workers in green reflective vests. I went to meet Melancon at his apartment in the Bywater in a renovated warehouse that provides affordable housing for artists in a now largely white neighborhood. Melancon, who was 42, wore thick glasses and a dense black beard. A basketball game played softly on the TV, before which two canvases were stretched. On one, curves of black bees outlined the cheeks of Breonna Taylor, who was slain by police in Louisville in 2020. When finished, a pencil sketch told me she would wear a chaplet of flowers. Damon was the first black masking Indian to have an overseas show of his beadwork at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. In October, shortly after my visit, the apron detail from his 2018 suit was auctioned at Sotheby's for over $100,000. The average masker costume takes 4,000 hours of work and roughly a million glass beads. Until recently, it wasn't common for maskers to spend a significant portion of their income on costumes. I've made suits and lost houses, Melancon told me. Recently, the New Orleans Tourism and Cultural Fund had begun providing grants to subsidize the costumes, and Melancon, a member of the fund's board, had connected community members with financing. People think I just want to talk to the mayor, he said. I'm trying to get us paid while we're still living. Melancon said he taught through his art, and he saw a house museum as a way to carry that into the future. 
but his apartment was barely large enough to contain even two costumes. The Selassie suit stood in a corner of the kitchen, facing the fridge, like a silent family member. Like in Zynga, Melancon believed that New Orleans' wealthy institutions should help fund the house museums, but he wasn't holding his breath. I'm trying to buy myself peace, he said. In a year, he calculated, he'd have enough money to buy a place that could serve as home, studio, and museum. He called it the Tribal Seed Museum. From behind a rack of t-shirts, Melancon pulled the canvas for his 2023 suit. Lines of spectral pencil depicted the famous 1839 revolt aboard the slave ship Amistad. On a vessel surrounded by sea, shirtless African men wielding machetes overpowered the crew. One man gripped the ship's wheel, his eyes fixed on some freedom just beyond the canvas. By the end of my August trip, Omar and Don had each complained that they were unable to get in touch with the other. Don was doing better, though he could no longer drive, and I arranged to pick him up one morning and take him to Omar's. Don was excited to show me his latest project, a box of black t-shirts bearing an original coinage. New Orleans music is the new cotton. The line, diagnosing the city as a cultural plantation, had been a type of signature on his text messages for a few years, punctuating the end of every exchange. He told me be ready for his forthcoming batch of Halloween shirts, which would read, Visit the New Orleans Jazz Mausoleum, because we're displaying the corpse, he said. When we arrived at Omar's, we found him consumed by his latest aspiration, for his Katrina memorial to be absorbed into a civil rights museum that had been promised to the city by the developers of the River District, a 39-acre commercial project along the Mississippi. Since the multi-million dollar deal had been finalized that March, Omar had noticed that the project's website described the Civil Rights Museum as a potential element, and he'd grown suspicious that it wouldn't materialize. Omar had rallied community leaders, drafting an open letter signed by Al Jackson and Beverly McKenna, among others, to remind the developers that they committed to the reality of a Civil Rights Museum, not the possibility. Don didn't think much of all this. We don't need another Civil Rights Museum, he muttered. We need some civil rights. Listen, Omar shouted. Listen. He began describing segregation as if this were a point of disagreement. He talked about being the first black counselor for a local Boy Scout troop and how the white boys had tried to convince him to drink a ball of urine they'd said was orange juice. Now slow down, Don kept saying. Now, Don, I know you've always been progressive, Omar said, in a tone that suggested a minor indulgence. But listen, in New Orleans, we have this tree we call the misbelief tree, the Japanese plum. And you have to start with the fruit that's on the lowest branch. At the top, they've got fruits red like fire, sweet like you wouldn't believe. But we'll get there, believe me. But we've got to get the fruit that's on the lowest branches first. Don was getting agitated and announced he needed to get his t-shirts out of my trunk. I followed him outside. He fumbled with his cigarettes. Omar has all this hate inside him, he said, and I just don't understand why he doesn't spew it all over the people responsible instead of worshiping them for what they have. Before leaving town, I took Don, Omar, and Mr. Jackson out to lunch at a restaurant of Jackson's choosing, Landry Seafood House, a white tablecloth chain with wide view of boats bobbing on Lake Pontchartrain. Who brought this old coot, Jackson said as he clasped Don's hand. Don and Omar seemed to have cooled off, and the three men chatted over bowls of gumbo and plates of discarded shrimp tails. 
For a moment, it seemed like maybe this was the highest fruit atop the tree. Soon, Don and Mr. Jackson began to disagree about Louis Armstrong, something about the historical marker at his birthplace on Tulane Avenue, and Omar began talking over them, trying to turn our attention to a story about the time he'd fasted for 33 days in New Mexico. Later that month, Omar's Katrina Memorial and Jackson's Petite Jazz were badly damaged by Hurricane Ida. Omar texted me on the eve of the storm at around 10 p.m. It was the anniversary of Katrina, and he was prepared to write it out just as he had 16 years before. Anniversary inside, one visitor, Omar. He was unharmed, but shattered windows let in debris and warm, wet air, warping and wrinkling his photos. Both Omar and Mr. Jackson eventually reopened their museums, Omar's in a new home. Before leaving Landry's that day in August, Don had offered Jackson a t-shirt. Jackson laughed as he unrolled it. New Orleans music is the new cotton. Exactly, he said. You can work it, but you can't own it. There's one painting that goes along with this letter. It is titled, Henriette de Lille by Ulrich Jean-Pierre. It shows nun Henriette de Lille walking down some wooden steps. There's a little girl about the age of three holding her left hand, dressed in white. She's carrying a copy of the Bible in her right hand. Standing on the left side of the staircase is a black woman holding a baby. Her head is wrapped in a blue scarf. On the opposite side of the staircase is an older black man. He has a cane in one hand, he's holding a hat over his heart, and he's looking up at her. In the background behind them all, framed by an open, unshuttered window, sits a church. That was a reading from Harper's Magazine and its harpers.org website. The title was Letter from New Orleans, Book of the Living, The House Museums of New Orleans. It was written by Marina Maklawa. It was published in December of 2022. The next reading is an obituary from the Memphis Commercial Appeal newspaper and its commercialappeal.com website. The title is Stax Records co-founder, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Jim Stewart dies at 92. It was written by Bob Meir and was published December 5, 2022. It's one of the strange twists of history that the greatest, funkiest soul label in the world, one of the most powerful outlets for black expression, was started by a white hillbilly fiddler named Jim Stewart. Stewart, the co-founder of Memphis's Stax Records, died on Monday at the age of 92. He died peacefully, surrounded by his family, according to a statement released by Stax Museum of American Soul Music, which confirmed his passing. Stewart was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002, and the institution noted that, as producer, engineer, businessman, and mentor, Jim Stewart was the center of it all. To those who knew and worked with Stewart at Stax, his generosity of spirit and his willingness to open doors, particularly to young black musicians, was life-altering. Stax records would not have existed. Soul music would not have been what it was if not for what Jim did and for who he was, said David Porter, Stax's Hall of Fame songwriter. Jim will forever be revered for providing the opportunity for me and so many others to do what we did. Regardless of how talented we might have been, 
Our music would not have existed had Jim not been willing to open that door to his studio, to his record company, and to his heart. Jim was a catalyst, and we've lost a real pioneer. A banker by trade, the mild-mannered Stewart was an unlikely convert to R&B and soul music, but he would create a racially mixed record company in the heart of the segregated South in the 1960s, helping shape some of the most influential works in American music. Mr. Stewart was the unpretentious, soft-spoken, diminutive white guy with the brill cream lathered hair part and dark fat-rimmed glasses that I met in 1962, recalled Deanne Parker, longtime Stax publicist and later Soulsville Foundation president. He gave us opportunities denied to most blacks in America, and we gifted him an indelible Memphis sound that, together, we created at Stax. The best part of our affable city is the music created in the heart of South Memphis, added Parker. Real Forever Memphis music is timeless, authentic art that teaches and touches your soul like those iconic sounds recorded from 1957 to 1975 on the record label Jim Stewart started. Born on July 29, 1930 in Middleton, Tennessee, in a rural area 70 miles east of Memphis, Stewart came up in a musical family, playing gospel with his sisters, father, and uncle. A fan of Western swing band leader Bob Wills, Stewart took up fiddle as a boy. I'm a hillbilly at heart. I grew up listening to the Grand Ole Opry, Stewart said, during a rare public appearance at the Stax Museum in 2018. After graduating high school, Stewart moved to Memphis, worked as a stock clerk, and then completed his military service, during which he played fiddle in the special services. After getting a business degree at Memphis State University, he began working at First National Bank in the bond department. Stewart was also studying for a law degree and playing fiddle on the weekends in a group called Canyon Cowboys. By 1957, Memphis had become a hotbed of independent record studios and labels led by Sam Phillips' Sun Records. Stewart began to see the possibilities in producing records. I recognize my limitations, Stewart told Arthur Robert Gordon. I knew that I could not make it as a musician, so producing was the next best thing. It was an outlet for me to express myself musically. Stewart would eventually launch his own label, Satellite, in 1957, after having had a couple songs he'd recorded rejected by Sun and various other local and regional labels. Early on, Stewart linked up with rockabilly guitar player and aspiring producer named Lincoln Chips Mobin and began making recordings. Initially out of Stewart's garage and then an early studio in Brunswick, Tennessee. With the financial help of his sister, fellow bank employee Estelle Axton, they were able to purchase a new Ampex tape recorder and began releasing records. The company would later change its name to Stax, a combination of Stewart's and Axton's last names. In his 2018 appearance at Stax Museum, Stewart praised his sister with taking the ultimate risk to build the label. She deserves all the credit for Stax Records. Because she borrowed the money, she mortgaged her home in order for us to start a record company, he said. Without that, this would never have happened. In 1959, the still-fleshling satellite label would find a new and permanent home in South Memphis at the site of the former Capitol Theater at McLemore College. Located in an increasingly black neighborhood, the move, largely ushered by the R&B-inclined moment, would change the trajectory of the company and Stewart's life. 
By this point, Satellite had been cutting country and pop songs unsuccessfully for almost three years. With money and prospects dwindling, Stewart welcomed a chance to record an R&B duet, Cause I Love You, by veteran Memphis singer, entertainer, and DJ Rufus Thomas, who'd come by the studio with his 16-year-old daughter, Carla. Within a few months of his release, Cause I Love You had become a regional hit selling several thousand copies in Memphis, Nashville, and Atlanta. Its success piqued the interest of New York's Atlantic Records and company executive Jerry Wexler, who began a distribution relationship with Satellite. Just as importantly, the success of Cause I Love You brought Stewart to understand the value of R&B and the opportunity to make that music the thrust of his label. As Stewart told Stax historian Rob Bowman, prior to that I had no knowledge of what black music was about, he said. I was like a blind man who suddenly gained his sight. Before long, Carla Thomas would break things wide open as a solo act with her hit, Gee Whiz, which sold half a million copies, and Rufus Thomas's Walkin' the Dog would also chart, and Stax Records, as Satellite was officially renamed in 1961, was off and running. Soon, other chart hits would follow, including the Marquis's Last Night and Booker T and the MG's Green Onions, as well as the arrival of Georgia singer Otis Redding. Over the next few years, Stax would largely tap the talents of a core of young black neighborhood kids from South Memphis to make its records. Booker T. Jones, William Bell, David Porter, and Isaac Hayes among them. It was this remarkable contingent of artists who would come to define the Stax sound as Stewart produced and guided the label through its early years following the departure of Moment in 1962. While the hits were memorable, the environment at Stax, a company where black and white people worked to make music shoulder to shoulder, was an anomaly in the segregated South of the 1960s. Stewart remained keenly aware of the inequities of the era outside of his label. In 2018, he recounted the story of taking the Stax's breakout star Carla Thomas to meet with Atlantic Vice President Jerry Wexler. Even though Carla had a hit in the top 10 nationwide, we could not go to a restaurant in this city and have dinner together, Stewart said. We went to the Claridge Hotel where Wexler was staying and we had to go upstairs on the freight elevator. That was one of the worst feelings I've ever had in my life. Here's a young lady who was a star, and she could not walk through the lobby of the Claridge Hotel. It was one of those moments in your life you'd like to forget, but I'll never forget that. Stax would continue to thrive into the mid-1960s with the success of Carla Thomas, Sam and Dave, Booker T and the MGs, and the scent of his brightest star, Redding. In 1965, Stewart would hire a young black disc jockey from Arkansas. Al Bell to head the label's promotions. Bell and Stewart had first met in the late 1950s at Memphis radio station WLOK. At Stax, Bell and Stewart shared an office and in the process forged an unusual bond. I was amazed to sit in the same room with this white guy who had been a country fiddle player, Bell told Arthur Robert Gordon. We had separate water fountains in Memphis and throughout the South, and if we wanted to go to a restaurant, we had to go to the back door. But to sit in that office with this white man, sharing the same telephone, sharing the same thoughts, and being treated like an equal human being was really a phenomenon during that period of time. The spirit that came from Jim and his sister Estelle Axton allowed all of us, black and white, to come off the streets, 
where you had segregation and the negative attitude and coming to the doors of stacks where you had freedom, you had harmony, you had people working together. It grew into what really became an oasis for all of us. In the late 60s, after a run of chart hits, Stax would suffer a series of unexpected blows. The death of Redding in a 1967 plane crash, the company's break with distribution partner Atlantic in 1968, and the pall cast over Memphis following the assassination of Martin Luther King that spring. After splitting with his sister Estelle Axton in 1968, Stewart and his new partner Al Bell would relaunch Stax with the backing of entertainment conglomerate Gulf and Western. Although Stax had lost its entire back catalog due to a contractual loophole with Atlantic, the company charged into its second phase with a soul explosion, issuing 27 new albums at once and reviving the label's fortunes. By the early 1970s, Stax was becoming an entertainment juggernaut. The company was growing in all directions, expanding its business dramatically while moving toward an increased sense of black awareness and empowerment exemplified by events like the massive Wattstacks concert and Isaac Hayes' Oscar-winning soundtrack to the exploitation hit Shaft. Al Bell would ultimately assume control of the company, buying out Stewart with the help of CBS Records. Despite Stax's success, by 1974, myriad forces, including the company's creditors and the IRS, had descended on the label. In 1975, Stax suddenly found itself in dire financial straits and on the verge of collapse. Though Stewart had become a wealthy man, when Stax began to face financial trouble, he poured much of his fortune back into the company. When Stax was finally swallowed up by creditors and shuttered in 1976, Stewart lost nearly everything. In 1981, he was forced to sell his possessions at auction as the IRS seized his home and kicked him and his family out. Thanks to some holdings in his wife's name, Stewart was able to build his life back up financially and did eventually return to recording in the early 1980s, producing projects for several veteran Stax artists. In later years, however, Stewart largely removed himself from the music business and the public eye. Over the last 20 years, Stewart continued to maintain a low profile, occasionally visiting the Stax Museum of American Soul Music, which opened in 2003 on the site of the original studio. Stewart was most proud of the work of the Stax Museum Academy, which fostered the talents of young Memphis musicians just as the label had decades earlier. Stewart did make an emotional public return to the Stax at 2018 as part of a celebration of his legacy, where his original fiddle was donated to the museum's permanent collection. During that event, a microphone was passed around the room to allow the Stax alumni in attendance to announce themselves. Carla Thomas, the Queen of Stacks addressed Stewart. Jim, any crown that anybody says they wear at Stacks Records, well, you're a jewel in their crown, Thomas said. I love you. The evening's benediction came from Al Bell, who summed up the affection for Stewart and his role in history. All of us became a part of your dreams and visions, and we thank you for that, Jim Stewart, said an emotional bell. If you had not come along when you came along, our lives would have never been the same. Thank you and God bless you. After the ceremony, Stewart seemed moved by the outpouring from so many old friends. I'm speechless, Stewart said softly, overwhelmed by the tributes. Stewart is survived by three children, Lori Stewart, Shannon Stewart, and Jeff Stewart, and by grandchildren Elisa Libel and Jennifer Stewart. 
That was a reading of an obituary from the Commercial Memphis Appeal newspaper and its CommercialAppeal.com website titled, Stax Records co-founder, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Jim Stewart Dies at 92. It was written by Bob Meir and was originally published December 5th, 2022. That's all for this week. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.